Blog Talk Radio. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to Movie Attic Headquarters with your host, Betty Jo Tucker, author of Confessions of a Movie Addict, right here at www.blogtalkradio.com. Hi, all you movie fans out there. This is Betty Jo Tucker thanking you for tuning in to Movie Attic Headquarters. You don't have to be a movie addict to visit here, of course. But if you are one, it's definitely the place for you. I'm very excited about today's show, folks, because we'll be talking about and with four remarkable filmmakers concerning their new movies. Von Regensberger, who is the writer-director of A Remarkable Life, is here, along with Chris Bruno, who helped with the writing, served as a producer, and played the starring role in this wonderful movie. Plus, later in the show, we're expecting calls from Wash Westmoreland and Richard Glatzer, the writers-directors of The Last of Robin Hood, which we discussed a bit last week. And happily, film critic Mac Bates is back to co-host. So let's bring him on right now. Mac, thanks for coming back again today. Oh, it's my honor, Betty Jo. Thank you for having me. Well, I'm so glad you're with us and that you've agreed to interview the um, writers and directors of The Last of Robin Hood during the second part of the show. But right now, it's my very great pleasure to bring on Vaughn and Chris, are two representatives from A Remarkable Life, which I think is a remarkable film. Vaughn has been here before to talk about his first movie, Last of the Romantics, which I absolutely loved. And by the way, Chris also starred in that film. Vaughn, welcome back to Movie Attic Headquarters. Well, hi, Betty Jo. It's my pleasure to be here today. It's great to have you on our show again, and it's also great that... Chris can be here. Chris, congratulations on your excellent performances in both of Vaughn's films. Oh, thank you very much. Thank you very much. I'm just driving through. Well, I really enjoy it. Well, we're we're just so happy that you could be here, and I I do want you to know how much I enjoyed your performances in both of the films. But this first question is for Vaughn. Uh, why, Vaughn, did you decide on? A Remarkable Life as your next project after Last of the Romantics. I'm glad you did, but why? Uh, how did that happen? <laughs> well, boy, it's, uh, I suppose the genesis of A Remarkable Life was born back in 2007, uh, right when we premiered Last of the Romantics back in Denver in front of my home crowd. Uh, during the Q&A Yay. that night, I was asked you know, by the audience what, what the project, uh, next project would be, and I've been thinking long and hard about what to write next and had a number of completely different topics in mind <laughs> that I wanted to explore. And some of those topics were uh, a, di- a dynamic between his father and his autistic son, uh, a man with Alzheimer's who uh, escapes a convalescent home. Uh, let's see, the symbiotic relationship between the boy with autism and the man with Alzheimer's. And this idea of a May-December romance was kind of lingering. So I cobbled together all of these various ideas into a log line, presented it to the audience, and to my surprise, it really resonated with them. 
And I guess this moment gave me the, the confidence to pursue writing the script. Um, the challenge was to find the thread that would weave together all of these disparate pieces, and uh, somehow the story emerged at the end of the day. Uh, then we were off and running. Wow. And so it's been how long in the making then? Well, seven, I guess six years before we uh, got to... Uh, to, to the set to start filming, and uh, with a year to you know uh, shoot the film and post production, it's been now seven years. So what a journey, Betty Jo. Absolutely, and I I just well you know that I I love the film. I just it's just got it's got everything. It's got drama and comedy and humor, kind of tied up in a nice little entertaining package. But it's also given us so much to think about. I mean, it's a it's a very serious film, even though it has its lighter moments, and it, it really hits uh, the nail on the head in, in all of those uh, elements. And, and Chris, you're lucky to be involved in this project. How did, how did you happen to become involved in it? Well, that's an easy, easy answer. And the answer is Vaughn. You know, Vaughn and I have had, uh, we're obviously, you know, I don't know if you know that, but we're cousins. And, uh, no. you know, we have a very strong family dynamic, and uh, Vaughn had approached me back in, uh, was it 2003, Vaughn, when we uh, decided to do Last of the Romantics? And, yeah, uh, that's right, Chris. I, I was working on a series at the time, and he said, hey, I wrote this script, and I was you know, wondering if you might want to get involved in it. I said, send me a script. Let me check it out. And uh, I loved the script, and we decided to partner up back then, and um, we you know, I felt very confident about the film that we made back then, and so we had a lot of fun doing it. You know, we've been to the wars together, Vaughn and I, and uh, I said, this is a guy that I will absolutely go into battle with anytime. And when he came to me with A Remarkable Life, I read the script, and it was in uh, really great shape, and I said, hey, I'm on board. Let's do this. And I wasn't supposed to play the lead initially. I was just going to play the brother, Max, and... Uh, we had some offers out and um, actually one to Matthew Perry, who we really thought would be, if we play this as a comedy, would be really great for the role. Uh, unfortunately, he was really busy and we kind of started getting other people pitched to us. And at a certain point, one of our guys said, well, well the guys that they're pitching to you, are the same, you're on the same level they are. You should be doing this movie. And I said, oh, that's up to Vaughn. And he thought about it, not for too long, and he said, you know what, let's do it. And uh, I really appreciate his courage and uh, faith in me to be able to play this role. Well, you know, uh, you probably had some challenges in playing Lenny because this poor guy, I mean, my gosh, here he is. He's he's just lost his job that he's had for, for many years. He's uh, trying to help his son who has Asperger's syndrome. And then he learns that his... his uh, his wife has fallen in love with the female doctor uh, that's uh, treating the son. All of this that that Lenny, the character that you played, had to deal with. What was your biggest challenge in playing this character? Well, you know, I think that one of the interesting things for me, and Vaughn and I had, you know, great discussions about this of how to play it. If we're going to play it as a comedy or play it straight, pardon the pun, but um, we decided let's just commit to the reality of of the circumstances and see what comes out of it. If comedy comes out of it, that's great. But, you know, to me, I feel like Lenny's life is kind of as bad as it is. It's kind of like 
an old reference of sex and pizza. Even when it's bad, it's still pretty good. And I think that he was able to, you know, as all these terrible things were happening to him, you know, still be able to kind of handle it with poise and grace for the most part until, you know, things really start to unravel for him at a certain point in the film. And he kind of snaps even on his son, which is, uh, you know, their relationship has been so, you know, just a really uh, beautiful uh, relationship between Lenny and, and Isaac. And, uh, you know, so in terms of challenges, I think it was more just conceptually how we were going whether we were going to play it straight and commit to the drama and let the humor play out or try and go for comedy. We decided to play it straight and just play it as, you know, as the reality of the scene. And to me, that was really fun and challenging at the same time. Well, it worked. It definitely worked because the moments that were, were humorous came across as so real, you know, just like every other part of the film. And it wasn't like anybody was trying to be funny. I really appreciated that. And Vaughn, did you do anything special? as a director, to help your actors deliver these great performances. I mean, the entire cast deserves uh, kudos. Well, yeah, I, I agree. The cast was amazing. We're very fortunate to have the people we did. And, uh, you know, I give uh, Chris great props for playing Lenny the way he did. I, I just can't picture anyone else in that role. And he really brought Lenny to light. And very proud of that. But, uh uh, there were two anecdotes that come to mind, but let me first say that when you have great actors, as we did, uh, you know, it's imperative to stay out of their way. That sounds a little yeah. cliche, but it's, it's really true. You know, it's true. Um, as a director, they'll let you know what they need. And on set, I think we tried our best to create a working environment of trust and calm and allowing the actors' instincts to take over. And that way, uh, they can go explore and get deeper into their characters by eliminating boundaries. You know, they want to know how far can they go. But uh, with, with Daphne, um, Daphne Zuniga, who played Lenny's wife, Tracy, I wanted to create more tension for her character. And I remember specifically when we shot her coverage, her close-ups, I would purposely hold off saying cut, sometimes painfully longer than ordinary, oh. attempting to create more edge to her character. Not that she needed help, but I just felt this little foible might translate to the screen. And I think it did. It's and then here. secondly, I remember, yeah, I, I just thought it was a little unique, annoying habit. And <laughs> I don't know if she ever really knew we were doing that or I was doing that, but it was it was just interesting and a fun little thing to try. Um, and then, you know, I think, too, of Jack Haran, the, the little boy who played Isaac, the nine-year-old with oh. Asperger's. He was so terrific. And, uh, again, I can't believe how fortunate we were to get him for the role. And... I felt perhaps that I'd be a bit intimidating at 6'3", towering above him. So I got down on my knees, and we'd talk about his character, about his choices, and I felt this way we'd be on equal terms. And, you know, well, this you would ensure down, that he knew. You weren't, you weren't looking down at him. You were down right on his level. Oh, exactly, yeah. And I, I felt that this approach, you know, would just help let him know I was on his side. And I really felt it worked great. We were buds for the rest of the shoot, and once he knew I had his back, his level of comfort was in full swing for the rest of the shoot. And uh, I know the you know the entire cast and crew made him feel at home, and Chris and Jack particularly got very close, and you could really see this translate on the screen. Trust was paramount, you know, for their relationship. He's also a really amazing kid too. He was uh, oh. he was just incredible to work with. I mean, an, an, an unbelievable energy. I mean, Avon, you know, you remember when 
people were trying to talk us out of having the kid in the movie. They were like, you can't have a kid in the movie. You're not going to find this kid. These kids are like, you know, right. this is once in a lifetime. Dakota Fanning, you know, you need a Dakota Fanning as a male. Mm-hmm. He's going to be able to show up and, you know, do these lines and be on set for, you know, X amount of hours per day. But Jack was amazing. He really, really great and really enthusiastic. He's a real find. He, definitely yeah. a real yeah. find. I, I was I, I very, very impressed. Real, yeah, I think he's a real star in the making, you know. I really do. I think he is. Well, definitely watch for him. Well, Vaughn, I was wondering also that um, I asked uh, – Chris, what his, what his challenges were in playing Lenny, but how about you in terms of the, you know, the total, I mean, you were responsible for the whole thing, producer and writer and director and a composer. <laughs> what, what was your oh, well, biggest yeah. challenge while, while making this terrific movie? Well, gee, uh, Chris, and I think you'll attest to this, we had so few challenges. <laughs> of course, I'm kidding. Uh-huh. Uh, my goodness, <laughs> making a film. <laughs> It, yeah. It's fraught with so many perils and challenges, really on a daily basis. But uh, I mean, this is the fun of it. We're we're in the business of solving problems, artistically, practically, you know. And just to have the opportunity to make a film, you know, you really embrace these these types of challenges. And I think the first thing, really, you know, I've got a multiple answer here because the first challenge came in getting a, a working script in order, and. Uh, you know, writing the first draft in 2007, um, and I think, I don't know, 2010 or so, Chris came along, and um, I felt like the, the script was in pretty good shape, and, you know, we just started talking for hours on end about a scene or dialogue for that particular scene, and sometimes on a nightly basis for a couple of years, and, uh, yeah. you know, we'd stay up late, and then I would stay up even later writing, making revisions, and, uh I'd have it ready by the following morning for his review, and uh, we were very diligent in this process. It was very collaborative, and uh, it came very easy, and it was just so much fun. And I think that we both knew we had something that could be quite successful and special, so we stuck to it and did the work. So that was kind of the first big challenge in this whole process. Um, you know, next yeah, was shopping the scripts, about. right? One thing you don't know about Vaughn is he's an amazing tour de force when it comes to uh, taking notes. And then literally I would go to bed and he'd be up another two, three hours. And then by the time I'd wake up the next morning, he'd have a completely revised script scene, whatever it was. Everything that we talked about would be there waiting for then for me to go over and take some notes on it, whatever. And it was a really amazing collaborative process that we've been through. And it's been so but you don't know the power that he has and how strong he is in his commitment to seeing things through. And it's really quite, quite amazing to me to be a partner with somebody that's that, that well, strong. Well, you guys definitely work together so well. And I'm, one of the things that I love about your uh, films, Vaughn, is the uh, musical score. I I just think you do such a terrific job. Well, of course you are a musician, and uh, so it would be important to you. But but why why is that so important to you in terms of the of the movie? Well, I I think music really helps to set the tone of a film, and it gives the uh, an audience an emotional compass to follow subliminally if if done properly. And I guess in my films, I want the score to literally become a character and have impact. So I'm always very cognizant of the idea of music and how it relates to the story. 
um, you know, in a remarkable life, the score starts immediately over black before any image appears on screen and trying to set an emotional tone right from the get-go. Mm-hmm. And, you know, we, we came up with this, you know, we revised it a little bit and, and had Chris sitting on the tree kind of describing his dilemma up front. And I really wanted to, you know, I guess help the audience establish that connection with our lead character. And musically, we call that a leitmotif, which recurs, you know, throughout the film again and ever, uh, again and again, forever tied to that character thematically. And, um, you know, when I write the script, I hear that music in my head for the characters and scenes, and it really helps me to dig in deeper to the feelings of the character and the motivation of the plot. So for me, it's a great tool. And, uh, then the challenge comes when the when you know we're done filming, the edit is complete, do the performances line up with the music I had inside my head, and I think I'm very much aware of trying to make sure that I stay in step, you know, with with the performances, um, and you know try to make them very solid on paper, and the performances usually follow, especially with the great actors we had. So I couldn't be more pleased with the score. I, I appreciate your comments on it, and. Um, seem to add some good gravity and insight to the film. So appreciate your uh, your insight there. Well, uh, I, I, appreciate I had a quick question the, for Vaughn, if you don't mind. Oh, yeah. Hey, Vaughn, uh, just to touch up and uh, follow up on the uh, musical score question, how much is, how important is uh, music to you in the editing process? I know uh, there are some filmmakers who they edit scenes in a very rhythmic way, and, they, and a lot of people seem to think, a lot of filmmakers seem to think that music helps them in that process. Have you ever utilized music in that way while editing? Absolutely. You know, there's a rhythm to editing. In fact, that's one of the reasons I hired the editor I I hired. Um, Music is highly important. There's a pacing to the film, and I certainly have that that pacing in mind when I write. And obviously on set, that's one thing I pay close attention to, and the edit really needs to embody that. So music kind of ties these things together. And, uh, you know, fortunately, I had some good, good themes in mind, although... You know, I didn't have them recorded at the time, so how do you then bring the editor on? And I tried to find like music to the taste I had and uh, at least the feel and the emotional scope of where we were trying to go with the edit so that we could get that pacing down. And, I, again, I, I just think it's so important for the edit, and um, it really well, is and you don't for have me a, one of the most score, important parts. You don't have a score that uh, overpowers the dialogue or the characters either that's that's part of why i enjoy it so much and it just enhances what you do enhances the story and the characters and doesn't overpower them and there's not a lot of uh, composers who can do that as subtly and uh, beautifully as you do so uh, kudos to you on that Uh, do you have any favorite do you have a favorite scene or scenes that's a question for both of you and thank you Mac for the uh, following up on that um, uh, question about uh, the musical score but uh, Chris do you have a favorite scene Chris Hello. Ooh, I think we might have lost Chris because I think he said he was driving around. <laughs> All right. right. <laughs> yeah, we might have we might have lost Chris. Well, Betty Joe, I could step in for a, a minute while we try to get Chris back on. Um, oh, if you yes, like. I, uh, yeah. Yes, please do. Well, recently I viewed the film with some of my executive producers their first time in seeing the finished product, and 
I was really touched by the scene with Father David viewing the Marian Anderson archival footage. Um, to me, this is such a key moment in the film, as it becomes a turning point for both the character and hopefully the audience. And when I was writing this, I'd been searching, racking my brain, trying to find something that would bring real gravitas to the moment. But nothing I'd written really lived up to that, <laughs> that notion and had the right impact. But uh, I, I've been kind of you know, trying to discover a monumental thing for Father David's decision about gay marriage. It would have to be based on civil rights. So what discovery would really spur him on to make a, such a huge choice, a life decision, and leave the church? But I came upon that piece, and uh, it really, it's just haunting. So to see it realized in the film, uh, it, it's just incredibly powerful to me. And again, it's the power of work ethic and just staying with something. If you stay long enough, you can find the answer to a problem that you have. And uh, to me, that it's just incredible. We found that moment in history that we could use to, uh, you know, help move the, f the story forward in a very powerful manner. And it worked. It definitely worked. I think we have Chris back. Hi, Chris. I'm here. Can you guys hear me? You got, yeah. <laughs> we, you got you got kicked out. I meant to tell you before the show started that that happens sometimes, and um, it'll sometimes happen to me. But you did the right thing. You just if it happens, you just call call back in and uh, yeah, I was coming and, up that, the hill. And, and, yeah, it. and so so thank you for for doing that. But we were talking about a favorite a favorite scene. Maybe you, maybe it's with with Isaac. I think you did talk a little bit about that earlier, right? Well, yeah. I mean, I had I had a ball working with him, and he was a really really fun spirit to have on set because he's completely different than his character. I mean, you know, as soon as you call cut, he's doing jumping jacks and wrestling with you, and you know, cracking jokes and everything. He's a very exuberant young young kid, and I, I really love that about him. You know, um, but we also had, you know. This is the thing. You shoot an independent film like this on a micro budget, and you know we're stealing shots all over the place. We're literally shooting in the middle of Broadway with no lock off, trying to wait for the light to change so that you know before all the cars come and wreck your sound and all that. But you know, there was a day that we had that I thought was really pretty fun, just for for all of us. I mean, you know, there was the MMA scene, which is I, I love to, to fight and train and all that stuff. But you know, riding motorcycles through Red Rocks was probably just in terms of a, of a great day, it was really a lot of fun. You know, I, I think oh, that I'll it's bet. a beautiful location. That, uh, you know, to actually be on set doing something that you love to do and, and having it be in a movie, uh, to me, I just, I had a ball doing that. I really thought it was neat. So um, It looked like it would know, be fun. It, and then, you know, we had like the breakup scene with Marie and I where I got one take. She had two takes, I had one take. And uh, because we were getting kicked out of our location. And the guy literally in the middle of the shot comes in. He's like, listen, I need my restaurant back. You guys got to go. <laughs> so <laughs> the fact that we got any kind of salvageable footage out of that, and I, I got to be honest, like I watched the scene objectively, and I think it actually worked really, really well. On you know, And I think it was very challenging, but sometimes – you know, rising up against those challenges, I find incredibly rewarding. So I really enjoyed, you know, those two scenes because those weren't easy days. Well, I, you know, I'm glad that nobody asked me what the favorite scene, my favorite scene was because oh, yeah. uh, a remarkable, remarkable life has so many uh, that I, I couldn't pick. I definitely couldn't pick out one because they're all, they, they all are favorites. I, I will mention, as I have to you before, 
one that I very very seldom cry in a movie, but um, your little guy Isaac did make me tear up in one in one scene. So that's quite an accomplishment uh, for him when he had the pocket watch and counting off, you know, how, how the seconds go by so rapidly. So very, you know, a very uh, underplayed scene, but very, very well, yeah. very well done. Uh, do you know that we're, uh, we've only got about, uh, well, just a few more minutes in the first section of the, of the show, so I want to make sure that I ask uh, both of you if, if there's anything else that you'd like to add about um, – a remarkable life, and uh, so uh, Vaughn, anything else that we haven't covered in uh, this discussion today that you want our listeners to know? Maybe how soon they could see it, or what you enjoyed the most, or what's the more, most important thing you want them to know? So you're on. Right. Right. Well, we certainly like them to see it as soon as possible. We're working on that end of things, trying to get the film out there. And literally, you were the first person to see it aside from uh, myself, Chris, and the edit team. So uh, we're really I'm pleased honored. that uh, we could bring you aboard. Yeah, yeah. But, uh, you know, so many great things. We talked about, you know, having Chris play the lead role. That was, I mean, a fantastic thing for me to kind of liberate the character. And I knew it would be in great hands with Chris, and things really came together. But uh, I guess the thing about this film is that... Uh, point of a remarkable life is that every one of our lives is full of surprises and weight and you know, each of our lives matter and the impact of what we do has far-reaching implications even when we feel that our actions are sometimes insignificant so we're all tied together and i think that's the beauty of this this little film all the little things we do add up into something something remarkable thus the title of our film and uh there were so many details that went into this film to make it possible and you know, with Chris sharing the majority of those details with me, it really made it worthwhile, this whole pursuit. and this uh, It's just beautiful to now see it to this point, completion, to be able to sit back and watch the story unfold and share the film with you guys, with the audience. That would be my kind of final thing to add. Well said, and I hope you'll keep me posted so I can keep our listeners posted about uh, when, uh, when it's... Um being entered into any film festivals and uh, you know yeah. if there's any news uh, then we can pass that along because we'll be sending you extra special good vibes and Chris is there anything else that you'd like to add about A Remarkable Life? Well I just think it's a real modern story of what a modern family ends up becoming you know there's these most marriages now end in divorce and you know people's sexual orientation, I think is, you know, we've had a real um, kind of liberation in terms of, uh, uh, you know, at least in this country of understanding, you know, sexuality and, and where it comes from and, and, and people's, you know, the choices that they make in life in terms of pursuing that. You know, I've, I, I have a great friend that I quote, we, you know, <laughs> kindly refer to as the Gabers, but they were both married before and never had kids and decided to move on. Now they're a couple and, you know, and it's kind of how life moves on and how you end up reforming your family. It may not be in the way that you wanted to, but it's a way that works and it becomes an actual functioning family relationship. And I think that that's one of the things that, you know, we were really able to achieve in this film is to understand that in this day and age where, you know, people can live the lives that they want to be able to live and still work things out with the people around them that love them and care about them, I think that's the real message of this film. So I'm I very agree. Happy. 
I agree with you, uh, Chris. Uh, that message came through loud and clear, the importance of family members supporting each other and the, um, uh, the, the realism in the movie uh, that made every, every we could identify with the characters and especially have empathy for Lenny as the lead character. So what a treat to have <laughs> Lenny himself here to talk about the movie as well as... <laughs> no, that's friend. cool. And I'll post this on my, uh, on my Twitter. I'm, I'm uh, at, at ChrisBruno16 on Twitter. Right, so, right. Uh, Why don't you do, do, that, do that? Do that. And so I, I really want to thank you, Vaughn, and you, Chris, for being such terrific guests today. And I hope A Remarkable Life is a big success, guys. And as I said before, oh, please keep you. me posted. Now, now remember you're, you're free to stay. I, I see that our um, that our other guests have have called in and are waiting. So, we want to turn now to another very impressive movie, The Last of Robin Hood. You know, Matt Bates and I already gave that movie rave reviews on last week's show. So it makes me very happy that the film's two writers and directors are here today. I hope. I hope I'm not speaking out of turn. First of all, well, I don't know whether this is Wash, Westmoreland, or Richard Glatzer, but let me let me see. Uh, welcome to Movie Attic Headquarters, uh, area code 213. Hello, Betty Joe. This is actually Wash, and very nice to be on your show. Well, I'm so glad that you could be here. And is uh, is Richard uh, with you also? Unfortunately, Richard's not feeling so well today, so I'll just be doing this one solo. But we know each other pretty well, and I will be able to represent his views accordingly. Well, please uh, tell him to get well soon, and that uh, we'll miss him. But uh, we have... Uh, we have a, a very big fan of Susan Sarandon's here as co-host today, and that's Matt Bates. He's been very patient with me while uh, while I've been uh, talking with Von Regensburger and Chris Bruno about uh, a remarkable film, a remarkable life. But um, but Matt wants to uh, ask you a few questions about uh, The Last of Robin Hood, which is a film you know I loved, Wash. So, Mac, thanks for waiting uh, so patiently. Uh, you're on now. What would you like to ask Wash? Oh, thank you, Betty Joe. I appreciate it. And uh, thank you, Wash, for uh, joining us on today's show. Uh, my first question uh, regarding the film is uh, what made, what was the uh, impetus behind Hello? 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 It's, hello? Uh, are you still there, Wash? Yeah, I got what was the impetus behind, and then it cut off. Okay. So I think what we're having a, a few technical problems, and um, let, me, let me see if I can get Mac back on here. Check. I'm very, very sorry about that. Oh, this. no problem at all. Yeah. Technology is great when it works. Okay, hey, Mac, I think you got – it was your turn to get cut off. So. Oh, okay. <laughs> All right. Can you hear me well, now? you want to ask that question again of Wash? Wash is on board here, but he's oh, here, okay. and now okay. you are, so go right ahead. Oh, great, great. You all can hear me. Oh, great. Um, yes, I was uh, asking, uh, what was the impetus behind the film? What made you decide to make a film about uh, uh Flynn in this particular time in his uh, uh, life, rather late in his life? Well – 
The short answer is it was the book written by Beverly Adlin's mother, Florence, um, about her daughter's affair with Errol Flynn. That was our first uh, point of entry into the story. Um, it was written in 1961 by Florence and uh, a writer from Long Beach called Ted Tomey. And it is this incredible, it's like a, it's, I guess it's in the genre of a kind of like tell-all biography. And um, it, uh, you know, recounts this story. And it's really Florence's answer to the tabloids. Because the tabloids have just had a field day with Beverly and Errol just kind of like tearing them apart and you know just um criticizing them at every turn and um this book was an attempt in florence's mind to put the record straight so um you know it was it was like her attempt to to tell the world this was actually uh, you know a true love story and um and the actual voice of florence is really fascinating because she's kind of salty and she's irreverent and she's funny and then sometimes she's strangely innocent and all these characteristics I think were things that Susan really brought to the performance. Yeah, the thing that I was um, really struck by about the film, uh, you know, I, I was familiar with who Errol Flynn was, wasn't really familiar with uh, his, the last uh, couple of years of his life or, you know, the uh, relationship he had with Beverly or his kind of, you know, reputation for being a uh, a cad, as it were. Uh, you know, had heard rumblings but wasn't really familiar with it. But uh, this film kind of, you know, helped bring it all into focus in a, in a pretty interesting way. And a lot of people, you know, certainly from my generation, uh, probably think, that uh, like the first real tell-all, and when it comes when it comes to Hollywood, uh, uh, you know, celebrities and, and you know, salacious sort of behavior, was um, Mommy Dearest. You know, that book about right. uh, about um, Joan Crawford Joan that her Crawford. daughter wrote, and this actually predated that book by several years. So it was uh, this book that uh, um, Florence Adlin, uh, um, you know, put out to try to set the record straight, and it was actually pretty uh, a pretty salacious tell-all from all accounts. Yeah, yeah, and, and then it's. it's like, it also has this amazing insight into celebrity and Hollywood because Florence was someone who's kind of, you know, she always wanted fame. She always worshipped Hollywood. She was kind of, you know, a showbiz mom. She really wanted her daughter to be successful. And so for her Errol, and for her generation, Errol Flynn was like the biggest movie star of, you know, the 1930s of Florence's era. And so this was like the golden opportunity that she'd, you know, waited for all her life. And for Flynn, he was someone who'd had so much fame, like thrust upon him at a very early age. And he'd lived this life, you know, very much, you know, in the headlines. And he, towards the end of his life, he was actually starting to reflect that, you know, he felt quite bitter about the way he had been exposed so much in the public eye. And he was almost like recriminating that he hadn't taken another route with his life. So it's an interesting, two, these two different points of view and two different philosophies about fame sort of intersecting and both these people projecting their desires on Beverly, who was, you know, a teenager who was kind of caught between these two giant egos. Yeah, and the remarkable, another remarkable thing, a remarkable thing about uh, Florence is that she had a uh, physical handicap yeah, like a lot of people with physical handicaps, people uh, aren't even aware of it until it's kind of pointed out to them in a very matter-of-fact way. You know, she's gotten to the point where she's very comfortable in her own skin, as it were. And so 
when you discover that she has a handicap, people are often taken by surprise. Like, you know, and you uh, touch on that in the film, and I just thought that was a pretty, a pretty nice touch. Um, and um, since we're speaking about uh, Florence, uh, you know, I just mentioned her and the handicap that she has. How involved was uh, uh, Susan uh, in the um, in the creation? Uh, you know, any, did she add anything to the script in any way when she was brought on board? Like, how did she? How was she um, brought on board? Well, um, she um, read the script uh, like it was on a Friday, and on the Monday we got the call from the agent. She loves it. She wants to meet you guys. So she was immediately seeing something in this character. And, um, yeah, she um, went all the way. I mean, so often in, in movies, Susan is acting a character who you're, as an audience member, you're thinking, yeah, Susan's right. Susan is always like, you know, Louise in Thelma and Louise, she's always yeah. like, putting the world to rights or in dead men walking she's she's on the side of the righteous whereas in last of robin hood she's kind of off target <laughs> she's saying a lot of the wrong things she has some bad ideas but yeah. she says them with an equal ferocity she still very like has that determination in that singular focus that susan brings to her role so that was a tremendous thing i think she saw that potential in the role um she um you know we'd have um special script sessions with her and Kevin and Dakota where we'd read through the scenes and feel our way into them and get a lot of, um, you know, if they had an idea that a line would play better a different way or maybe try this, we'd kind of discuss it there so that by the time we got onto set, we were all on the same page about how the scenes were going to unfold. And we really enjoyed those times because you're away from the lights and the cameras. You're just able to get into the script as a director and an actor and just really boil scenes down and work out exactly how you want to play them. Oh, so how long um, before you started uh, filming, how long was the rehearsal period? Did you get a chance to rehearse at all, or did you kind of do all your rehearsal stuff uh, during those, um, what you just mentioned when you uh, kind of read through the script? Well, we had one, uh, we had a, a week, long weekend in New York together um, with the actors, and then we were actually shooting in Atlanta, Georgia. So then the next time they were all down there was probably about a week from starting um, the shoot, so we had about three or four smaller rehearsals down in Atlanta, just in preparation for the, you know, the actual movie, and it it, it went well. You know, the character came together. We actually. Um, managed to track down some of the original tape recordings that Florence Adlon made for the book um, oh. and it was quite difficult to get hold of them <laughs> because yeah. the author Ted Tomey couldn't lay his hands on his copy and then Beverly Adlon had a copy of them but she couldn't find them either and it was after Beverly Adlon passed away her husband was clearing out an old closet and he found a shoebox in the bottom of the closet and it had all these old cassette tapes and then he phoned us up and he goes "What? I think these might be the tapes so this was about three or four months before we shot. So we wow. went to see him and just sat in a room all afternoon just listening to Florence. And we're like, this is incredible. And the way she talks, her humor, her manipulations, all this stuff was coming through on the tapes. And then on the tape, it said something like, you know, it gave a date like this is March uh, uh, 1st, like 1961. 
one. And it was at 50 years to the day that we were listening to the tape, so we were like, oh, spooky. Oh, yeah, that's, yeah. That was, <laughs> How did that happen? <laughs> that would have been, the, yeah, that must have been a trip. Um, we put the and, tapes onto a little iPod um, uh, shuffle thing and gave mm-hmm. them to um, Susan. So before she came on set, she'd just be in a trailer, like, listening to Florence's voice. And she really worked on getting that diction that Florence had right. So she, she made a real study of it. Oh, great, great. Um, and, you know, in terms of uh, Errol Flynn, you know, I, I don't think there's anybody alive that I can think of who could play Errol Flynn quite as well as Kevin Klein. And the funny thing about that is uh, Kevin Klein is actually almost 20 years older than Errol Flynn right. was at the time. That's yet uh, you look at him in this film and you completely buy him as that character. And I was wondering um, how, how he got involved in the project as well and, you know, uh, any, any input he might have uh, brought to the proceedings like uh, Susan did. Well, it, you know, it's, it's Kevin was the first of our three stars to come on, and um, obviously we were really excited because, as you say, he's the perfect person to play Errol Flynn. He's the kind of guy who can take over the whole room with an anecdote. He can just be charming. He has the physicality. He actually did sword fighting in college. He's played swashbucklers on screen. He's like the full package is Kevin, but we're kind of like... You know, he is, as you say, I think he's technically 16 years older than Flynn was when he died. So I'm like, okay, that's a bit of a gap. And there's, you know, various things you can do in the movie to make people look younger. But you're like, do you want to be doing that all the time? You want a more, you want to allow an actor to be natural and free in, you know, in the way they portray the character. But the way it worked out, Kevin has taken such good care of himself that he looks a lot younger than he really is. And yeah. Flynn, it was the opposite. He's taken such like <laughs> terrible care of himself that he looked a hell of a lot older than he was. And they kind of met in the middle. They actually <laughs> looked exactly the same age. So it worked out perfectly. Great. And um, I also had the same question about uh, Dakota. How did how did she get involved? And uh, what what sort of input, uh, if any, did uh, she bring? I'm fairly sure she brought some, but I'm just like, you know, in particular, anything that might uh, stand out that's in the film. Yeah, it's interesting. Because um, we'd already cast Kevin and Susan, we had the financing for the movie, and we didn't need, like, a movie star to play Beverly. And we were auditioning lots and lots of young actresses in L.A., and we just couldn't find exactly the right person. And at the same time, a good friend of ours, Kelly Reichart, was making a film called Night Moves that was released earlier this year in April. I don't know if you saw it. It had Jesse Eisenberg and Dakota and... uh, um, Peter, what's his name? Anyway, it was like, um, you know, a really nice thriller. And when um, Kelly was working on it with Dakota, they were um, out on a lake in the middle of a night for this night shoot when there were these eco-terrorists were going to blow up a dam. And there was something went wrong with the equipment, so they had to stay out there for two or three hours just doing nothing. And Kelly said, you know, my friends are doing this movie and she started telling Dakota the story of Lost of Robin Hood, and Dakota's eyes were lighting up, and Dakota goes, hey, yeah, it sounds great. <laughs> <laughs> so really, we owe it to Kelly that um, Dakota immediately contacted us, and um, we met with her, and, you know, she, she's just the greatest. She's a, a, an incredible young woman and uh, has a great insight into the character and has this amazing... Um, you know, way of giving characters such a strong internal life, which is so important for Beverly, because Beverly's got to be the most grown-up character in this story in many ways. She's the kind of adult in the room a lot of the time. Yes. And Dakota brought that quality to the role. Yeah, I'm, I'm glad you mentioned that, because in, uh, there have been so many films uh, that you can uh, pretty much uh, say, like, the kid was the smartest guy in the room, or 
the smartest uh, young woman in the room, you know, yeah. when they're surrounded by adults who you would think would be on the ball, who are, you know, uh, in 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 their own way very childlike, very kind of, uh, you know, cut off from reality in a way. And, and in this film, I noticed that uh, yeah, Beverly did tend to have uh, to be the voice of reason, you know, in, in a, a film filled with adults who you thought would be the ones got kind of guiding her, and in many ways she was guiding them. And, and, yeah. And, uh, yeah, particularly um, I noticed that very much so in the uh, Cuba set sequence. When um yeah. yeah when Arrow you know uh, takes ill and it's kind of left up to her to uh, you know make sure that he gets uh you know some sort of medical treatment and he's you know fighting against it and she's insisting and you know it's kind of like this back and forth and I just thought wow that's quite a dynamic you know where um the 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 uh, the uh, teacher becomes the the student and the student becomes the teacher and and uh, right. uh, strange right yeah um. Uh, you know, speaking speaking uh, along the lines of making the film, um, you and uh, uh, Richard Glasser both uh, co-wrote and co-directed the film. How did you all divide up your responsibilities, uh, you know, in each capacity? Well, we are actually um, partners as well in life, and oh, okay. we sort of live and breathe our movie projects. Like we talk about <laughs> first thing in the morning, last thing at night. Um, we talking about the movies that we're working on. And, um, you know, we write them together. And when you're writing, you're doing a lot of the work of a director. You're figuring out the dynamics of a scene, the way the story's working, the way, what the characters are doing. So we do all that preparation together, you know, when, when we're writing. And that takes, you know... Uh, quite a long time to you know hammer a script into exactly the right shape so by the time we'd written the script we were already pretty much on the same page and then when we're on set I tend to be the more proactive one and I'll you know be more running around uh, putting a lot of energy in there and Richard is more like the uh, he's like the higher brain function he just sort of takes an overview and has a much more uh, like a wider scope to his vision of exactly what is happening in the scene, what's going down on the camera. So we have a split, almost a temperamental split on how we work together. Now that was always there. Um, all four films we've worked together have been with that dynamic. But in recent years, Richard's actually developed ALS. Um, he um, started getting a speech difficulty in 2011, and it turned out to be, you know, a gradual uh, paralysis. And by the time we made Last of Robin Hood, he couldn't speak. So he had to use an iPad with a, a, a text-to-speech program oh. that he would type into, and it would speak for him. So basically, he directed that movie through an iPad, which is a pretty astonishing achievement. And he was there every day, all the way through, and everyone was pretty inspired by it. Wow! Yeah, I had uh, I've actually read um, um, some uh, info about that on IMDb at the uh, film's official uh, page, and I was wondering whether or not that was true because you know, with IMDb, uh, half of the stuff is true and half of the stuff is questionable. But I'm glad that you uh, were able to clear that up. So. Um, oh, yeah. yeah. It's, it's really interesting because, you know, the whole ice bucket challenge thing yeah. has happened. What an amazing eruption of spontaneous love and charity, you know, that's affected America and the whole world. And it's, it's brought awareness to this disease. Um, we kind of felt pretty isolated <laughs> before this. I mean, our friends support us, but there's just not a lot of knowledge around about this disease. So, you know, the events of the last few weeks have been so heartening to us, and we love all of those videos that everyone's making. We just think it's the best thing. 
Yeah, I actually, um, I'm glad that you mentioned that, the uh, Ice Bucket Challenge. I myself took part in it about a week or two ago um, at the assistance of a, a good friend of mine. And I, you know, um, um, you know, embarrassing enough, I have to admit that I was aware of Lou Gehrig's disease. I, you know, heard heard the term before, uh, knew a little bit about the film, you know, uh, Pride of the Yankees that Gary Cooper did, but I really didn't know much about the, uh, the you know, disease itself. And right. through this Ice Bucket Challenge, uh, you know, uh, people are kind of getting a crash course in what ALS is, uh, you know, uh, about and what it is and how, you know, uh, devastating, you know, it can be. And, you know, I certainly wish, uh, you know, you, Richard, all the all the best in, uh, you know, uh, a cure being found or a proper treatment being um, yeah. discovered, you know, in order to uh, um, you know, alleviate or eradicate it, you know, altogether. But uh, oh, yeah, thank, thank you. you. Thank I you so much for sharing that. Um, uh, well, back to the film. Um, speaking speaking of uh, the, the three leads, um, how was it working with them? Uh, how uh, you know? I'm assuming they're all you know, working different capacities. So, uh, tell us a little bit about how you elicited uh, the performances from from all three of them. Well, it was it was great. It was a tremendous experience, and it was a, a learning experience for us. I mean, there's a reason why um, Kevin Klein and, and Susan Sarandon have such long careers and have such great movies. They bring a lot of um, of their own personal um, quality into the character. So. Uh, and they have opinions, and that is where the creative conversation starts, which is what filmmaking is really about. Um, uh, Richard and I, we're not like dictators. We don't say just like, you know, stand there, do this, do that. We don't, we don't walk around with a bull, bullhorn like <laughs> Eric von Stroheim. <laughs> we just like to have the conversation, and what these people will bring you, um, Kevin and Susan, they come with ideas, and they come with their own research, and... and Together, you kind of figure out the best way to play a scene and the best way that a character would respond in a certain circumstance. I mean, Kevin's research into this was exhaustive. He read everything. He watched everything. He became obsessed with listening to these very obscure radio interviews. He tracked down a Flynn and get the accent exactly right. And then the cufflinks should be like this. And he found a photo with this kind of ascot and these kind of shoes. And he was obsessed with every single detail. And he became so immersed in it that you kind of, I don't know, it kind of felt, like Errol Flynn was walking on the set, he did change. I mean, <laughs> he did become more Flynn-like. Um, the crew started calling him Mr. Flynn. It just seemed <laughs> natural. Um, he, Kevin started calling his own chauffeur Ronnie, uh, and Flynn's chauffeur at the time was Ronnie Shedlow. I mean, it was just, it felt like this tie-in with the spirit of Flynn, and Kevin had gotten, you know, was able to express the inner life of this very complicated guy. And then, interestingly enough, Sean Flynn was in the movie, who is Errol Flynn's grandson. Oh. And um, he actually plays a part in Cuba of the young guy who Beverly goes off with on the back of a motorbike. Oh, yes, okay. And he, um, when he met um, Kevin, they got on great, and he said to Kevin, you know, I never met my grandfather, but today I feel that I have. And I don't think there's a higher compliment than that. Um, yeah. I'm actually from, from Sean well, Flynn himself, who is a great here. young actor and a great person as well. I, I have to interrupt here because that uh, Kevin Klein being Errol Flynn uh, just came across 
the screen. I mean, it came. Yeah. I'm telling you, he he looked like Flynn. He talked like Flynn. He swaggered like Flynn. Definitely. Of course, not not in in the younger age. And all the time that he was doing this, we he made us understand that there was a lot of uh, you know uh, deterioration going on in his. Yeah. Uh, yeah, but he but he was just to me he just absolutely became Errol Flynn, and so uh, I did not know that uh, he went to this extreme to get into that character. That's that's really a wonderful story, Wash. Thanks for sharing that with us. Well, thank you, and I think yeah, it, it, Kevin didn't want to do an impersonation of Errol Flynn. He wanted to embody the spirit of Flynn, and I think he got that. It never feels like he's just copying a Flynn movie it always feels like a very personal interpretation of who Flynn was and um, yeah uh, he's such a committed actor and that's why he's done so many great performances and we're very happy to have worked with him all right. Well, um, we have a couple more questions before we uh, have to wrap up. Um, the, the one I'm, uh, you know, very interested in finding out is uh, during during uh, the shooting. You know, certainly after you've seen the film assembled, do you have any favorite scenes? Uh, you know, particularly one that you filmed and one uh, that you've seen uh, since the movie's been assembled. Okay. Yeah, I have like two favorite scenes. Um, one's at the very beginning of the movie, and one's quite close to the end. At the beginning of the movie, we recreated a scene from 1959 that happened in Los Angeles when the news finally broke that Errol Flynn had died in the arms of a girl, and the girl was 17. And the press just went nuts. And you know, we ha- we'd written this scene of like you know this aeroplane comes in and the press mob swarms and Beverly comes down and Beverly faints and it was actually based on an account in the LA Times and we were just like you know we we shot in Atlanta Georgia we're like where are we going to get an aeroplane from Richard's niece is like oh I have a friend who has an old DC-3 is <laughs> we're like you're kidding <laughs> so we got this aeroplane basically for the price of the gas to put in the tank to fly in and then it was freezing cold it was so cold I never knew that you know the south could get that cold uh, and but everyone just turned out in these suits and ties and with the old you know flash bulbs and the old cameras and like Everyone was so up for it, and it was so exciting to be there. And we, you know, we shot the whole day. It was so cold, but it stayed that sort of pristine, clear sky that we needed. And we just got the scene, and we it cut together. And we're like, this is just fantastic. This is exactly how we want the movie to feel. Like, have that feeling of the press. Have that feeling of the, you know, Beverly alone in the wash of the flashbulbs, and have her mother Susan just trying to call to it above the heads of the press it just it just seemed to work so nicely um so we were really happy with that first scene oh great towards the end um was the the scene where flynn dies and again this was um taken from a lot of accounts of of his last anecdote which he told which was about uh, the corpse of john barrymore john barrymore which a few friends actually stole from the mortuary and put in flynn's house um it's it's a legendary story drew barrymore actually told it to david letterman and um you know we it was our first day on the set working with kevin and he just came in and he told this anecdote in a way that mesmerized not only all the actors in the scene but mesmerized the whole crew it was just incredible to see what he did and he captures those last moments of a man who's dying and who's suffering but who has to entertain and be that icon to the very end so that was a wonderful scene 
Oh, great. Oh, Thank you for what sharing. What a wonderful scene. And you know what? Speaking of toward the end, <laughs> we're coming <laughs> toward the end of the oh, show. Oh, I'm sorry. I, I'm to, sorry. I, could talk I all hate day. to break in, but, but our time is almost up. And what a fascinating interview. I don't know whether you know, Wash and Mac and Vaughn and Chris, how happy I am right now to hear all of you talk about two of my my very favorite films so far this year. I mean, this has just been such a special treat for me. And I want to I want to thank you, Wash, and I want to thank you, Mac, for the, for this second part of the show. I I, I feel uh, just elated, uh, the same as I felt with Vaughn and uh, Chris at the in the first part of the show. And I want to uh, tell you that I'm hoping um, both of these films receive some well-deserved attention during the movie awards session. And Mac, you've just been an excellent co-host, but I have to say that's all for now. So this is Betty Jo Tucker giving a big shout-out to the folks at Blog Talk Radio for their support and to our producer, Nikki Starr, for all her help. And thanks also to our chatters and other listeners for tuning in. Please come back next time for our fall film preview. Noted critics Nell Minow, the movie mom, A.J. Hockery, the mad movie man, and movie Mac, well, that's Mac Bates, and you all know who he is today, will be here to help us make sense out of the many, many films being released this fall. In the meantime, don't you forget to check out our film reviews at realtalkreviews.com. That's R-E-E-L, realtalkreviews.com. Now, if I can find it on the switchboard, Nikki is usually here to help me. I want to close the show with a song that Nikki and I like to dedicate to all our loyal Blog Talk radio listeners.
much I love you Then you'd be forced to love me too If you knew how much I adore you You'd stay with me and be true 